Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to Reality Check Radio with uh, Greenwashed and uh, Don and Jaspreet. And uh, remember to send in your text 2057 for any feedback or inbox at realitycheck.radio for emails. We love your feedback. And um, I just, today we've got a fantastic guest. And a couple of weeks ago, I saw a YouTube clip uh, on the pastoral, uh, Pastoralist and Graziers Association of West Australia and Tony Seabrook. And I thought, hmm, interesting chap. And then last Sunday on Outsiders uh, with Rowan Dean, I saw him again. I thought, this man's got to be on our show. And so not often we have someone who um, says it how it really is. It's not something New Zealanders are used to. And as a farmer lobbyist, I thought, Tony's our man. And today we're very honoured to have Tony in our company. Now, Tony, you're in York in Western Australia. I've learned that... uh, my research, Western Australia is 10 times the size of New Zealand. It's got a few less people, like about 3 million, I think, and we've got about five. Um, what do you do in York, aside from being a man in a suit one day and a man in boots the other? Well, I got shouted off to boarding school when I was 11 years old. Um, I was doing a lot of farming even before that. Dad had me on a tractor uh, way back then and, and harvested not long after. But I got back seriously farming at the end of boarding school, year 12 in 1967, uh, and I've been farming very, very actively ever since. Uh, we've taken off in a whole lot of different directions, an earth-moving business for a while in conjunction with the farming. Um, the biggest thing we've been involved in is importing machinery from America and China, uh, large four-drive sprayers, four-drive front-end loaders. Uh, we bring them into the country disassembled and we put them together on the property. Um, it gives us an extra sort of string to the bow because we we farm when we need to farm and to keep the staff occupied, we, we do the, the machinery stuff as well. So um, I'm still very active around the farm, still roaring around on a motorbike. Um, I've given away the big tractors and the harvesters mostly because I've done too many, to- too many hours in them. But I'm still very active with my son on the farm, my wife, and uh, it's a family show. Uh, and then I've got the PGA stuff on top of that. And uh, it certainly makes for a very busy life. So wait, so is it um, big broad acre property or is it intensive um Farming, what is it? I mean, I, I think no, I know depends, tell me. It depends where you come from. If you come from close to the coast, it's huge. If you own a farm out east of Meriden and, and you've got 30,000 acres under your belt, well, we're a hobby farmer. But uh, no, we're in the middle. We're in the middle. We've got we yeah. got big gear, you know, 40-foot harvesters, 40-foot air seater, uh, 450-horsepower tractors. Um, but we're not at the big end of West Australia because some of those guys are huge. Yeah, so it intrigues me that you've uh... – added that strength to the above of importing because obviously there's a lot of people, uh, a lot of agencies importing big gear too, but you found a niche and it's it's profitable. Don, more than anything, it keeps me in touch with what's happening. I've got good contacts in America. I talk to them all the time. It's very sophisticated equipment, uh, highly electronic, um, and so that keeps us all pretty sharp. The stuff from China, um, I've been to China 20 times. I've seen, seen the country from top end to bottom. It's a fascinating place. I'm really saddened at the way that their leader is taking them because I, I like the Chinese people. I enjoy my time there. They're industrious. They're, they're, they're good fun. Um, I like the place, but I'm just saddened by the way that, that somehow or another Mr. Ping seems to want to take the world on. It's, it's unfortunate. Well, it is unfortunate. And just while we stay on this technology kick for a minute, um, I think that uh, with the removal of protectionism in New Zealand in 1985, and a similar time, I think you had 
sort of some some privileges taken away as well. Uh, aside from all those alternative things like ultra high interest rates, I think we went through a fair bit the same. Isn't it amazing how the technology uh, has hit New Zealand and Australia, uh, the, the modern technology, the, the the size of machinery, the technology that's in them seems to have um, come to our countries sort of since the turn of the century in a very big way. It wasn't there before that I'm aware of. Now, I posit this, that a lot of the stuff is devised in countries that have huge subsidies, huge protections, and they get the they get this groundswell of cash in to develop these technologies that we're actually the beneficiary of. It's a strange angle, but I think we are. What would you say to that? John, the associations I'm a part of has fought for the entire time I've been there and for time before that to try and get government out of out of industry, out of our face, get them out of the way. Um, what I saw when I first came back farming were subsidies that allowed unions to keep on demanding more and more and more. And, and we had a, a fantastic car industry here. Towards the end, we had four major manufacturers. When Mitsubishi pulled out, it left with three, Toyota, Ford, and, and um, uh, Chrysler. Um, what happened was that the, the subsidies just ruined our country. They just allowed the unions to keep on pressing and pressing and pressing to in the end, the burden on people like ourselves, selling wholesale overseas and buying sort of retail in Australia at subsidised prices. Um, it's been a very refreshing thing to see our nation open up because globalism is about us selling our product all over the world and buying what we need around the world. But I was also saddened enormously to see what went by the by. And I'll put this down to voracious unions just demanding more and more and more till in the end, you can't pay workers in Australia over $40 an hour to assemble a motor car when the Americans are working on $14 and $15 an hour. You can't because it flows through into the cost structures. And we're having this at the moment. Inflation right now, it's got to be nailed because it will kill us if we don't. Yeah. 100%. And, and of course, uh, it's almost like the expansion of government um, in your um, state and in our country uh, is killing the golden, golden goose. And the, you know, this, I, I read a, a document from, I think, uh, Daniel Wilde that addressed your organisation last year, stating that uh, effectively uh, uh, bureaucracy sort of grown about four or five times faster than um than the business of farming, basically, very hard to uh, to compete with the cost of bureaucracy uh, when it's going at that sort of rate. Don, yeah. no, I've seen the publication. Uh, Daniel gave me a copy of it when I met with him about a week ago, a bit less than a week ago, and it's like the old frog in the pot of hot water on the stove. You, you hardly notice that the water's getting hotter and hotter until suddenly you look around the place and creeping, crawling socialism and bureaucracy, it's getting to every corner of our lives, um, and, and it in the long run, that old saying, I'm from the government, I'm here to help. No, you're not, mate. You're in a white car I've had to pay for, and you're not going to help me. You're going to work me over. I know that for a start. So please just don't tell me lies. Get out of my way and let me do what I do well. The, the meddlers are rampant, I used to say. And, uh, the meddlers are rampant. <laughs> I thought they'd go away, but they never have. Um, no, so, they're all so, the time. So talking about meddlers, um, it looks like this latest uh, – Aborigine Cultural Heritage Act has really put the cat amongst the pigeons your way. And yeah, having done a little bit of research on it, because clearly that's what you were talking about on Outsiders, um, it seems to me that yeah, you know, some people are saying that the former act was working okay. And if that's the case, what was deficient about it? Why, why are they, why are they yeah, doing this? Let, let's step, step back a bit. 
there's a madness in this country now. Um, people are so inured to it. They don't notice it's happening, but there's an absolutely absurd overlay, and it's the whole Indigenous issue. Now, we have a population here, uh, as of the census of 2021, indicating a little bit over 3% of our population identified as Indigenous. Now, the truly Indigenous would, would question whether it's that much, but the impact they're having on the way our country is being run is, is just out of this world. It's just when you step back a bit and have a look or an outsider comes into a country and has a look, it's a madness. You know, this, this comes to our nation at an enormous expense. And I was asked in an interview by a television journalist about two weeks ago about the Mabo decision of 1993, which is the land rights issue. And he said, you all said the sky would fall in, and it didn't. And I said, sorry, sorry mate, it did. You've got no idea how much harm that Mabo decision has actually made. Um, in, in every way, it's costing us hundreds of billions of dollars to try and comply with this because the, the demands are voracious. There's no end to it. The empowerment of people that, that now call themselves, well, traditional owners is the phrase they use, but not much emphasis on traditional, not on owners. Um, across every facet of what we do, it's costing. So what's the delivery point? When you look at the, the situation that the Indigenous people in Australia find themselves in, we have this thing called the gap, and that's the difference between the, the life of, of, of Indigenous people and, and you know, white Australians. The gap is there. There's no doubt about that. But it hasn't closed. By all the measures that you would think that this decision might have cured the problem, it damn well hasn't. Now, there's a huge amount of money going into, the, into this industry, and the IPA have come up with a figure of $100 million a day, a day. Now, $37 billion a year funding this, and we still see film footage of people that can't speak English, Indigenous Australians who can't speak English. You, you see these people living in communities that, that obviously are not part of our main society, and they damn well should be. And I've been saying it loudly for quite a long time, forget about the voice resolution well, referendum, which is what we're talking about. We need a Royal Commission to work out what the hell's going on. And, and from the point of view of myself, and you can see the map behind me, um, we represent the pastoral state of West Australia, as well as the ag area down south. Now, the government money that's funding uh, what's going on here has actually been buying properties, uh, both down south and up north, and handing them over. Now, in many, many cases, in far too many cases, these were highly productive properties that have now been turned into a lifestyle uh, operation for the people that are living there, and they're not producing. Um, in some situations, there have been some appalling outcomes with lack of, of animal welfare and, and thousands of head of cattle have perished because of the inability of the people that have been handed the property to, to actually care for the animals in the way they should. And then in a lot of cases, there's subleasing going on. So this goes back to more traditional people next door or whatever to, to sublease the property just to get some value from it. But you know, the, the city people are being hoodwinked into thinking that Mabo and the decision, the land rights issue that went with it was a wonderful thing. It's just about strangled development in so many areas of Western Australia. And now all of a sudden, we now have this, this issue that the state government has, has, has drummed up, uh, which is the Aboriginal Cultural and Heritage Act. and, and um, I think the the station people, the parcel people who lease their land, have probably been living the nightmare for a very long time. But where I am on what we call freehold, um, I don't think that anyone really thought this could happen, and it has. And uh, two things have happened here. A very cunningly conceived piece of legislation has been brewed in the bowels of the Department of Aboriginal Affairs and a whole lot of Indigenous people there that and supporters that think it's a great idea. But most of us didn't even see it coming. You know, the farming community had no idea it was coming. And now all of a sudden, as of the 1st of July, we have an act that we have to comply with. 
And that's been the biggest fight I've been having up until the last, well, even now, right in the middle of it. Tony, your current premier, I think that's the term you use in Australia, Roger Cook. He's, if I look at his background and I look at his, his wife is the curator of the art gallery of Western Australia, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. Uh, she manages that collection. And the moment I opened that website, trying to get a, get a bit of a handle on the guy, the website begins with virtue signaling. We acknowledge Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the storytellers and the owners of this land and, and pay homage to the ancestors and elders. Sovereignty was never ceded. Why are all your Australian websites suddenly, and I'm seeing it in New Zealand websites also now, but literally I can't open any Aussie website without this. It seems yeah. like it's been a long time coming, hasn't it? Uh, but I, I said there's a madness sweeping over our country right now. And in the last 12 months, every ABC journalist announces what country they're on. Um, we have this nations thing that they keep talking about, Aboriginal nations. They're not nations, they're tribes. I know what a nation looks like and so do most thinking people. They are, they're tribes. I don't mean it insultingly. I'm just basically stating a fact here. They're tribes. And, and there's another thing going on, which is the creation uh, of a belief that the Indigenous people lived in great harmony uh, before the white man came, that it was a perfect society and all we ever did was upend it and destroy it. Now, we're seeing on television everyone's an auntie, everybody's an uncle, this great happy society. The stories I hear from people that are living out in the bush is they're pretty pretty warlike people. They've, they defended their own patch extremely well, um, but they didn't give much. Uh, the welcome to the country nonsense that we go on with here is exactly that. Uh, I have been told that up in Geraldton in about 1975, I believe, one of our rather well-known entertainers uh, was prevailed upon because the, you know, your lot had come over and you, you, you'd done the haka and, and uh, as a welcome, and we had to have something to, to, to match that, and so we had this welcome to country. Now it seems to be an obligatory thing that every single event, everywhere you go, you have to have a welcome to country. And if it was a simple thing, uh, and I'd still object to that, but it's not. <laughs> The people that come to do Welcome to Country uh, for the big corporates, they get paid in the many, many thousands of dollars. And instead of them just standing up and saying, I'd like to do Welcome to My Country, it can go on for half an hour. And it's it's a concoction. It's an invention. But our school children are being uh, inundated with this. They're being indoctrinated. Um, it's going to be very hard to make this generation coming through the education system to understand what it's really like. And, and this goddamn welcome to the country, we don't do it. We flatly refuse to do that. And I've now assumed the position where if I'm in any, any, any function or where we have that, I'll stand up and turn my back. I'm not going to put up with it. It's wrong. And I wish that more Australians would have the courage to say, to call them out, to just simply say, we have an issue with Indigenous people in our country that needs to be resolved. It has to be resolved. Education, health, it has to be resolved. But not this bloody virtue signalling that's going on. This is a concoction. Dawn and I have often spoken about this. We have these initiatives called DEI, diversity, equity, and you know, inclusion. They've added one more B to it, belonging to it. And all companies out here are doing this. So I find myself shaking my head when, when you were speaking, Tony, rather vigorously. And we seem to have our own version of this cultural, you know, struggle that they've suddenly aroused the Marxists out here. But coming back to to the laws that have now your Aboriginal cultural heritage laws that have been passed on 1st of July. I think they're active. They are they're in active now. They are as of last Saturday. Yes. So 
it seems that the Labour government has very conveniently taken care of this, the majority of its voters. Anyone having a holding of less than 1,100 square metres, you're fine. You're exempt. That's it. Oh, they looked after their own, own they, power They looked base. after their own voting base, but oh, yes. uh, farmers are under the hammer. How how bad is it right now in terms of what, how onerous is well, it, do you think? I, I, I met with the minister and we've been trying to explain to them that, that we didn't believe they were ready to implement it anyway, even if they did. And uh, we had a victory uh, on the eve of the promulgation of the, of the legislation. And the, the Premier actually said, uh, we will form a, a working group, an implementation group. The first meeting will be next Monday. And a whole bunch of, of people that uh, are affected will be part of that group. And also, uh, it will be lightly enforced, were his words. Now, we don't know what that means. It doesn't mean that, that uh, you might not get fined. We, we don't know what lightly enforced actually means. But this working group, this is cunning. This is when if you don't have a solution to a problem or you don't want to be the one that's called out for making the decision, you form a committee. Then you hand the, the workings to the committee and you, you, you allow them to work their way through it. You make damn certain you, you organise the right people on the committee so you get the result that you're aiming for at the end. Then you don't have to accept the responsibility at the end of the day because you can then say the committee told us what to do. So we have a member of our association who will be attending the first meeting on Monday. I'm not going. I reserve the right to stand on the outside and give them a kicking because I think they deserve as much as we can give them because they look, what they've done to us, this is this is freehold land. It, it's We have a slightly different term here. It's called fee simple. But we've been here for a long, long time, seven generations on this farm, and we've cleared it, we cared for it, we nurtured it, we looked after it, we pay the rates on it. Now, all of a sudden, I have to seek permission from people I don't even know, local Indigenous people, to come onto my farm at a fee, and, and the fee gets it, it escalates very quickly, to determine whether some part of my farm may have Aboriginal and cultural heritage significance. Now, there's no way in the world that any of the people I know are going to destroy a site that is clearly a significant ceremonial site. Mm. But there are words like um, landscapes, uh, songs, woggles in creeks. You know, it, it's such a, an unbelievably um, diverse area in which they're working. And th they can come out here at my request. I have to ask them to come to the property if they're willing to come. And then they can wander all over my property determining whether in some way, some part of my operation intersects with Aboriginal culture and heritage. Now, I would only ask them here if I was going to do something that was uh, not a normal practice. We're allowed to plant a crop. We're allowed to do like for like is the phrase they use. But we don't do like for like. And we're always putting up a fence here, taking a fence down there, filling in a gully, cleaning up some rocks, putting down a dam, putting in a trough putting in a set of sheep yards, putting up a shed. We're always doing stuff that's not like for like. So the minute that, that I'm about to do something that is not totally like for like, and I do what's called due diligence, and a lot of us are very lost as to what that means, then, then we will determine whether it's a tier one, tier two, or tier three activity. God help you if it's a tier three activity because that gets really, really complex and expensive. But even tier one, you need to be very careful because it's all in the interpretation. It just depends on how they interpret what you're doing. The fees yeah. are not cheap, are they? For your uh, local ACH service, you call them larks. They are talking about $160, $180 an hour out here. And, and there's no time frame on that. 
Um, and depending on where you are, uh, if you're a bit isolated, uh, then there's travelling involved, then there's meals involved, then there's accommodation involved, and there's no time frame on it. You can't actually say, well, what's it going to cost? You know, at the end of the day, they'll come and they'll determine what they want to determine and, and, and no cost. And most of all, um, you aren't really able to contest this. You know, it's said to be improper to question who's coming out. And, and you know, if, if, the, if the person, well, put it this way, the tribes didn't move around very much. So local is local. It has to be local. You can't get someone from 20 or 30 kilometres away to come on, onto your property. It has to be someone who's local. Now, where I come from, there are not a lot of those people there, but they are incorporated into our town. They're, they're part of the footy team, hockey team, whatever. They are local people. And you put them in a hell of a situation because they're the only ones, the local ones, that can actually determine whether they have any memory of anything being on anyone's property. But they will go to a farm and immediately money will need to change hands. There will be decisions taken that, that they will have to have ownership of. And I don't know whether Roger Cook's in any way contemplated the amount of friction that this might create in a town where you know, hopefully everyone is getting on well and, and you know, mixing in and being part of that community. It's, it's sort of separate. It's setting a, a group of people aside from mainstream society and then giving them powers uh, to interrupt what we've always done in the past. And, and this will not be good for the way that communities interact. When, when I saw um, words like co-design uh, as part of your planning, I immediately thought of New Zealand's uh, collaborative process, as it's called here, and we've got co-governance being talked about where um, Maori will have power of veto uh, at, they'll have 50% of the new water regimes that we're going to have, three waters or 10 waters, it's called, and they will have um, 50% of the vote plus the power of veto. Um, unbelievable. You've got a long way to go to get to that, but you can see how divisive the creep will be just from and, and our it might happen more. It might happen more quickly than you even know. But I think one of the things that needs to be said here is that there's an enormous transfer of wealth going on in this country today. Um, some of it's from the mining companies, but also there are people that are su substantially subsidising what's happening in our country. There's a, a real disconnect from those that want something for nothing, and there's a real lack of any understanding that if you've got something for free, it's probably because somebody else worked for it. And, and you can't just keep on demanding more and more. Money doesn't come out of a hole in the ground or out of the cloud. It comes from people that pay taxes. And the minute you start penalising the wealth creators, the people that actually generate wealth, as soon as you start penalising them, then you diminish the capacity of governments to actually put in place the sorts of services that the welfare lobby are yelling their heads off for. And I just watch on television again and again, all these little lobby groups, God knows where some of them come from, they all want the government to fund their cause. You'll very rarely see anybody stand up and say, I've got a great idea that'll make some money for us. Everybody just wants something for nothing without considering that we actually have to do something to get that money in the first place. Yes, same here. And, you know, in the end, the carcass uh, is going to be eaten by the parasite. So, uh, you know, in the end, there will be nothing left. Uh, and and then we'll have to reform and, and you know, have a, have a reset uh, to coin that phrase that I don't like. But, you know, that's... Um, that's not far away if if they don't back off because yes. actually I have the statement that uh, everything has a derivation as uh, it's everything we enjoy its derivation is on the harvest of from the environment whether it's the land the sea or the scenery and in your state it's it's the land uh, that's giving up most for everybody's 
well-being, to use that word that I don't really like either. But, um, you know, why is it that we can't get that understanding that, you know, you can, the host is being eaten alive um, by by the by the parasite. And I, I don't know when we can turn that around, but it seems to have gotten uh, a lot of traction under the last three to five years, especially, would that be fair in Western Australia? It certainly is. Oh, I, no, look, there's, there's no doubt. It's, it's, it's getting worse at an accelerating rate. And look, I've been a sheep farmer all my, all my life, and we always have blowflies at certain times of the year that, that, that strike sheep. And uh, the end result is, is not a happy, happy result. When a sheep gets fly struck, the ultimate thing will be death. Nothing gives you more satisfaction than catching that sheep, using a pair of dagging shears to clean it up around the breach, and then we put the blowfly treatment on them and watch the bastard squirm. And then the sheep runs away, ready to have another life. It's Look, you've just nailed it. Parasites are parasites. And, uh, look, as a, as a broad society, we need to be able to look after those that, um, that need a bit of help. But there's got to be a qualification somewhere. There's got to be some point where you say, uh, we give you a little lift, but the floodgates aren't open to give you every damn thing that you want for free. And there's, and sorry, sorry, Jasper, uh, for interrupting. There's only one political party in New Zealand that's even remotely close to that now. And 10 years ago, 20 years ago, there was even the centre could be relied on to talk like that. Everyone's too scared to talk like too that scared. now. Too scared. And, and of course, we've got mainstream media eating, uh, eating these people that are trying to be decent alive because they've only got to say one word out of line and they're they're nailed. I mean, um I I've listened to some alternate media from from yourself on this um this ACH act and it's like there's nothing to see here. What's Tony on about? And they're full of, <laughs> they're full, full of platitudes. And that's what we get here as well. Nothing to see here. There's only only a couple of crazies like Don and Tony firing the shots. Um, Don, I, there's something really subliminal here that people don't know. Um, socialism is the is the friendly side of communism. It's as simple as that. There are a lot of socialists that wouldn't own up being communists, but that's what they are intrinsically. They, they want everything. They want everyone's wealth. They want to redistribute it. Indigenous society in Australia is probably the most perfect communist system that there's ever been. They didn't own property. They shared everything. Um, and I'm not, not saying this is a criticism, but that's what it was. And so there's where the natural affinity lies between the Indigenous population of Australia and the Labor Party. They're connected at the hip through this, this view on, on property ownership. Um, so what, what we see here is, is the gradual, creeping, crawling socialist you know, event that's overtaking all of us. And it's beholden upon people like myself and others to stand their foot on the ground and say, no, we know exactly what's going on here. And the AHC is not so much about preserving Indigenous cultural sites. It's about actually gaining control over land and disempowering the people that own it. And a lot of the people that I hold in high regard know this, and we've had this conversation on a number of occasions. The simple thing here with regard to these sites, the state government has got $77 million to throw in, and I think they put $7.5 million aside a bit before that, and there will need to be more. That is a lot of money. So what you might do is go to these local larks, if you want to call them that, form these little groups, then tell them you are the local knowledge holders. It is not beholden upon the farming community to invite you and pay you to go onto their properties. You sit down today and you work out, you tell us where they are, get a map, work out where they are, and, and, and allow it to be contestable and put your name to it so we know exactly who has actually nominated this site as what it is. But it ought not to be 
it shouldn't be required to be contested by the farming community. The local Indigenous people, if they are elders and if they have the knowledge, then they should actually designate these sites and not this myriad of bloody regulations and things that see someone like myself. There's a bulldozing contract rang out yesterday. It's a million-dollar dozer with, with the ancillary gear that goes with it. He's parked in a paddock about 20 kilometres from here, and he doesn't know what to do. And, and these so-called larks, they were never in place. So I think when the state government backed off, they probably breathed a sigh of relief too because it was, the, the structure is not there to in any way deal with the legislation that they enacted last Saturday. And that's how, that's how farcical the situation is that we're in. But it's, it's just so wrong that, that people that are normally going about their business suddenly have to stop uh, and try and work out what they might be liable for, what it might cost them in the future, and whether they should go ahead or whether they should accept the fact they're going to lose a lot of money and sit down and do nothing. It's crazy. Looking at uh, the Western Australia government's budget, the recent budget, uh, Tony, it seems that the parasites have taken their pound of flesh. It says that they anticipate higher goods and services revenue up 344 million, largely as a result of uh, some sports trust, as well as higher fees and charges for the Department of Planning Land <laughs> and Heritage, up to 86 million associated with the Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act, expecting this is the expected cost recovery for the administration and to fund these services. So is it like, you know, uh, providing a noose for your own I, neck I, and paying yeah, I, for it as well. I'm glad you picked up on that because most people don't know that. They don't know there's a line item there that designates how much money they're going to squeeze, squeeze out of those of us uh, that are going to have to comply. Now, a lot of those companies, or people that might comply, might be mining companies and they might have deeper pockets. But most of the people I represent are family shows. And uh, you know, whatever you take off their bottom line comes off their income. And a lot of them are not doing all that well you know, at all. So, um, you know, you, you hit them hard and, and it's not recoverable. Um, but the other thing that you made an interesting point about, um, this Labor government we've got in power and WA right now, they have been so lucky. You know, the mineral uh, boom that's going on in our state, the royalties that are flooding down from up north, um, you know, they couldn't believe their good fortune because they've done nothing to earn it. They've just sat there and the royalties keep pouring in. And then there's another aspect to it too. This fly-in, fly-out workforce that, that goes up north, um, they are extremely well paid, massively well paid. And you can almost hear the whoopee as they get off the aeroplanes in Perth because we are off to town to spend that money. And so while they're spending it, um, the GST is, is is coming off the top and that, that goes to the federal government. Um, and, and then the, there's another layer too because you've got the royalties coming in, you've got the workers coming down here with all the money, throwing it around the place, then you've got the incredible profits being made by the companies that are building the infrastructure up there, carting up the fuel and taking up the steel and, and building all the plants. Um, we've just got dead lucky over here, and it's allowed some of the most appalling government you could ever imagine to be inflicted upon little people that are running a business and trying to earn a living and, and remain independent. And Do you have an opposition at all? Sorry, you don't. Do you have an opposition <laughs> at all? That is, you know, perhaps thinking, I don't know. <laughs> they got clobbered, not the last election, the election before. And so uh, Mr McGowan came to power and he did all great things with COVID. He shut the borders and everybody felt secure and everyone thought that Mr McGowan was the best thing since sliced bread and he was wonderful and whatever. And he started spending all this free money that started coming down and we got a bigger slice of the GST from the federal government and things were whoopee do. So then we had another election, utter landslide. I think the opposition parties could meet in the back of a combi van at the moment. 
Um, I know most of them, and, and they're decent people, but for, for whatever reason, the population of Australia has put in place what's nothing more than a dictatorship. They can do what they like. Uh, there's no holding them back. And, and you know, for a long time, the press was so enamoured with them that even if a, there was a small murmur of discontent from the remnants of our Conservative parties here, they didn't get heard. So um, as a lobby group, we've always been able to work with oppositions and whatever, and we, we've, we've cut deals all over the place and usually to the benefit of our members. But we're being ignored right now because they can just give us the greatest thrashing of all time and, and there's not much we can do about it. And I'd just like to think that maybe the population of West Australia might wake up to the fact that not having an, an effective opposition isn't really such a bright idea after all. No, and it, it did feel like the, the guy that was your opposition leader leading into the last election got given the hospital pass from hell because he um, looked like he <laughs> he looked like he had no idea how to handle the situation. No, and of course he got thrashed. No. No, and and no. the good thing about Western Australia, um, I could say, is it's full of Kiwis. Uh, I've got lots of family over that way and lots of people I know. So um, they they love Western Australia. So you are in um, in a state that uh, has benefited a lot of Kiwis and especially of Maori origin. They've gone there and gone to the mines and you're right. They get off the plane. Yeah. They do that fly and fly up. They come south and, oh, gosh, they love speaking. No, no, I, I'm going to tell you a little story here. The welfare that's available to Indigenous is is dazzling. You know, th these guys know every trick in the book. They know where the money is to be had. And, and it's very rarely that you'll find um, young Indigenous fellows actually wanting to work. Uh, some are in the workforce, and I take my hat off to them, but it has been the greatest disincentive uh, to get these kids uh, into work. We're desperately short of labour, and, and they are a labour force that we should be able to use. But we had a Minister for Agriculture who retired recently and, and she was always trying to, to generate a course, you know, teach these guys how to ride a horse or how to shear or work in a shed hand, a shed hand's in a shearing shed. And, and Alana and I, we were sparring partners. Um, she, she called me bad, Tony, and we got on in a fashion, but um, she didn't like me very much. So uh, she started up this Indigenous shearing course up at um, Geraldton and, and uh, I asked her another occasion how it was going and she said, oh, it's early days yet. And so I'd actually had a, a, a shearing team out working in our shed, four-stand shed, um, but it was on a Sunday. And, and the, the crowd that turned up, it was marvellous. Mum, dad, kids, uncles, aunts, nephews, kids running around the shearing shed. It, it was great. So I took a photograph of the whole lot of them on the board, including my son, and it was a happy photograph. And I showed it to Alana and I said, here's your Indigenous. This is your Indigenous shearing team. Look at them. Oh, look at them. All from New Zealand, the whole damn lot of them. And they were. <laughs> Uh, it's a good story. It's happy, a happy good story. crew, happy crew. Work on a Sunday, which you're not supposed to do over here, but uh, the family were there, and it, it's a great photograph. Um, but there weren't any Australian Indigenous there, which was a bit sad, actually. I can honestly say I don't think in all my time of shearing sheep I've ever had an Australian in my shed or sheds and, around and, here. And this is the issue. This is exactly the issue. Yeah, yeah. We've we've created a situation where we're drowning them in welfare, and, and it's not to their benefit. It just isn't. Um, you can't have kids growing up on country, because that's the big phrase here, on country, and think they've got a future. And, and a lady up at Halls Creek on television about three weeks ago, she said, my boys have to leave home. They've got to go away and get an education to have any chance in life. And I thought, you little ripper. Here's one Indigenous lady who understands what it's about. But to have kids growing up on, on country, unable to, to perform those basic arithmetic and, 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 uh, and English, they're destined to a life of, of you know, 
that falls so far short, and this puts them on the wrong side of the gap. And, and it's it's imperative that that um, that we bring them into our society and, and educate them, and, and to think we're helping them by allowing them to live on country, um, it doesn't work that way. So has Jacinta Price um, got a good uh, good uh, following in your state, or is she? I a think she's voice? got she's got a terrific following, and she's a she's an amazing lady. You know, to have the courage to stand up and say what she's saying in the face of the rest of the industry that would vilify her, given half a chance. And I, I read some of her life story a while ago, and boy, oh boy, has she been through it. She has lived the whole shooting match. She knows everything about you know, what's right and what's wrong. And we start talking about you know, people getting buildings at home, kids getting buildings, um, murders, uh, just a whole lot of stuff that, that if the ordinary person in the street in Australia actually knew this and it would open their mind up enough to want to go and look for it and read it, they realise the concept of this voice isn't going to solve anything because the reality of life out in the bush for most Indigenous people isn't that flash. And, and it's just it's beholden upon us today not to, to pass the voice, which is just going to be pure tokenism, but to actually get governments to, to do something, just do some damn thing. We've had, we've had long enough. you know. We've, we've had way, way long enough. And, and to find ourselves in the situation today and to think that we'll have a voice Linda Burney made a, a, an address at the National Press Club day before yesterday, and she prattled on as if once we've got the voice, everything will be fixed. It'll be it'll be a way and running. And Linda, I'm sorry, $100 million a day, and, and this is the situation we find ourselves in. Don't look at us. Look at yourselves because, you know, look, there's 22 – it was on ABC News, I believe, what they had to say, 22,000 Indigenous children not living with their parents today. Now, that's not the problem of white Australians – They've got their elders, they've got their tribal structure, they've got the people there that they say want to administer this and come to government and tell government what's required. That's outrageous. You know, that says there's a fundamental issue that's wrong there, that, that these people either need to address themselves or go to someone else that might help them address it and get on top of it. Because that for that many kids to be not living with their parents, I, I just, you know, it's, it's yeah, yeah. I, I couldn't believe it. Yes, this is on the ABC well, News. Yeah. Well, and and uh, you know, every Western country seems to have this—the breakdown of the family unit. Uh, you know, I don't want to sound all precious about it, but it's uh, it's a failure, and it's it's almost it's encouraged. Uh, it seems to be it's encouraged over here more than discouraged. Break down the family unit. Have dad not a, nowhere to be, nowhere to be found. Um, have have all sorts of parenting going on, but between pillar and post, you know, granddad, grandma. And uh, and and daycare and the children um, are lost. They don't really have the the sort of father and mother figure that they need to have. So I, I, it's not it's not uncommon, uh, Tony, and it's it saddens me that that's where we are. But to me, it's part of that. Um, yeah, we talked about sort of cultural Marxism earlier. Marxism. It's part, it's part of it. It's part of it to break down the institutions that we once took as sacrosanct, gone. Uh, a bit like property rights. Uh, I know you're a big property rights man. Um, I am too. Uh, break down the property right. It talks about that and something I've read online today. Um, property rights the way we think they should be don't exist anymore. It was in your state. I read someone had said that sort of property rights uh, aren't, aren't necessarily the way you understand them. Now, I'm sorry, property rights have got one understanding, and that's what they are. <laughs> what they are, uh, don't I? Yeah, yep. you, you've gone where I was going to go. You, you said it. That's the absolute truth of it. There's a, 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 there's a very strong, um, how do you say it, 
Well, part of the doctrine of socialism is the breakdown of all of those structures, the family and, and all of those things that, that we'd normally believe. But look, in, in 1988, uh, Bob Hawke, who is a great champion of the downtrodden, gave an address uh, in the what was called the Bicentennial Address, and, and he used two phrases, and, and if I can just quote them, he said, there will be no hierarchy of descent and no privilege of origin. Now, they were very, very meaningful things to say, and Tony Abbott made them on television last night in an interview on ABC television. They should underpin where we are because right now we are being told that there is a hierarchy of descent and it is a privilege of origin. And it flies in total contravention to what he had to say. And in those few words, he summed up the whole issue of where we are with this and by not, not adhering to what he had to say, we're just sowing the seeds of a great sense of anger and fury because there's no doubt that this fellow Thomas Mayo and, and others have a whole different view of where the vo voice may take us to. And it, it's it's about claiming back what they consider to be their heritage. And, and look, civilizations throughout eternity have conquered one another. This is what, what's happened in Australia is not unusual. This, this happens all around the world. And from the ashes of the last civilization arise the new one. For us to be complicit in dragging our, our achievements backwards, it's absurd. You know, we need to welcome them to come forward into our society, not 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 hold them up as, as the paradigm of where we need to be. Yep, I, I couldn't agree more. And you know, I was listening to you both speak about the breakdown of the family structure. Uh, fathers have been replaced by paychecks to a very large extent. I've, I'll never condone staying in a bad marriage, but I have seen it very, very plainly. But for listeners, uh, we've referred to the term, the voice. This is what Australia is pushing right now about a constitutionally enshrined Aboriginal voice. And I can't help, Don, I don't know if you see the parallel between our co-governance and the voice. There And Tony, there will be a referendum on that one. And it's, right they now, haven't, I they see... haven't nominated the date, but towards the end of the year, probably November, December, uh, there will be a, a referendum to change the the constitution. And, and what Jacinda Price would say is, we're all Australians. We're all equal Australians. How wrong is it for one tiny group to have this unbelievably uh, strong access to government at the highest level? You know, it, it's it's wrong. We're we, we're all equal, and the sooner we recognise that but not to say that this group of people that represent a very, very small percentage of our population could have access at the level that they do. And you know, why not Why not a voice for the Italian migrants? Why not a voice for the Greek migrants? Why not a voice for the Catholics? Right? It, it, it is just so wrong and it's being sold in such a way that people think it would be a cure for a lot of the problems that are out there. And I'd suggest that as time goes by, if it gets up, if, uh, we'll look back and say, well, that didn't work very well. Well... Tony, bit of advice, just look at New Zealand for exhibit number one Number one, as to where you will go. You're not going to be there even if the referendum gets up. You're, you've still got a long way to go to get where we are because we are doing mass reparations. We're giving mass massive rights to um, to Maori uh, through, through the, the um, voting rights that I talked about before. Uh, the paychecks are significant. And New Zealanders seem to be blasé about it. And it all comes back to a, a finding by a judge. In fact, it wasn't the finding. He just made a glib, seemed to be a glib throwaway line. He talked about the Treaty of Waikiki, which is 1840 signed, was a partnership. Or he used the word partner or partnership. And ever since that came into the media's hand, 
all hell is broken loose and, you know, tribunal after tribunal finding. Uh, it's always one-way traffic. It's always one way. And, of course, there's the elite end of town, the top end of town, driving their black Range Rovers and um, and uh, and in the latest sharp suits, all running this agenda. And they're being allowed to uh, get away with it. And, of course, people like Jaspreet and I, we talk like this, and we, we're being quite brazen, apparently. Yeah, we're outlandish. If, if if this discussion <laughs> hits their ears, we're we're just the worst um, of the worst, and yet no one that doesn't appear there's many people brave enough to to call it for what it is. So, I think you're going to be at least even if the voice gets up, and I don't think it will, by the way. But if it did, I would suggest you are still light years behind New Zealand. So, uh, so it, stay it, there. It's, stay it's there. a small. It's a small comfort. It's a small comfort. I, <laughs> I know, look, there's a lady, she's a Russian lady, and she died quite a long time ago, but she wrote a book called Atlas Shrugged. Yeah. And, and there's a society, the Rand Society, and the book's available, and I'd ask anyone that is even faintly interested, because I buy copies of it and I hand it out all over the place, it is the blueprint. It's the mm-hmm. blueprint of what's happening in the world today. And uh, you realise just what a sad end it will take us to. But But most of all, I think the saddest thing is, the potential was there to be so much better for all of us. And we just threw that potential out the window on the altar of greed and power. Well, um, that's that seems to be how it is. Uh, I agree. And, of course, we've got, and we, I didn't think we'd go, to, go there tonight, uh, on this interview, but, you know, we've got uh, the Build Back Better slogans. We've got the Just Transitions. We've got the well-being. We've got all these words that came out of um, the mouths of our Prime Minister that your Prime Minister has used. Um, and it seems some of your Liberal Party uh, subscribe to the, the WEF agendas as well and UN agendas. Why have we been so blasé about those agendas as well? Because we have politicians who are in denial that there's any connections with especially the WEF. We clearly know there's connections with the UN. But we even have found that some of our lead trade negotiators have been on committees of the WEF. So to be told that they're not close is just weird. No, no. Look, it starts in school, and it probably started five, six, ten generations ago, but the school teachers start feeding the kids on this bloody claptrap, and then some of those students go to university and the university student, uh, teachers and professors feed them on more of it, and it turns into just a tighter and tighter circle until in the end the whole education system is so based on, on the views of the left, and you know, I've got family members that have been through that, and, and they are so inured in this whole socialist nonsense that it's almost impossible to drag them away from it. Um, it's it's this sort of thing that all wealth is to be shared and, uh, and, and some of them make a lot of money, so they don't mind sharing a fair bit of what they've got. But the funny part about most socialists is that they're dead keen to share someone else's wealth, but they're not usually that keen to share their own. They, they, they want to hang on to that bit. Um, but you know, it's so difficult to get kids out of university and actually have to get them to start thinking again because the whole of that cycle it just brainwashes them into a belief that what you're talking about, all these UN stuff and, and you know, just so much of what, what society is led to believe is the way forward is rubbish. So let's move off social policy for a moment, although it'll probably link. Net zero 2050, 
Western Australia, is it donkey deep in that uh, sort of stuff? Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 And yeah. Yeah. Is, there, is there all this climate anxiety amongst uh, young people? Oh, look, the, the, the whole climate anxiety thing is, you know, is rampant. Um, the issue of our reef, the Great Barrier Reef, you know, there's, there's protests up and down the main street of Sydney and Melbourne and, and many other places because there's this quaint belief that there's something in Australia we can do, something we can do that will save the reef. The issues with the reef are China and India and developing nations around the world that don't have our standard of living. And, and there's nothing we can do that will make any difference. If, if they're building 20 or 30 coal-fired power stations in China as we speak and India as well, then nothing we are going to do will actually solve the issue. But our, our leader of the opposition over here, Peter Dutton, made a comment this morning that, that I, I totally adhere to. Um, the cost of building the infrastructure to, to move the power from where green power can be generated, and photovoltaics is the main one, but probably wind as well, we are going to need thousands and thousands of kilometres of high tensile wires with big galvanised towers and wire and all the rest of it to get that power. Look, when a coal-fired power station comes to the end of its life, knock it down and bang a little little nuclear plant plant there. Just put it there. The world is generating staggering amounts of nuclear power. Um, why do we in Australia feel so precious that we don't have to do that? Uh, you've got rising power prices all over Australia. Fuel prices are, you know, are high, probably perhaps coming down. But in, in every way, cheap power is what our society needs to be based on. And these small modular nuclear power stations they can do everything we need and the pollution will be zero. And yet, oh, no, we can't do that. We've got to go photovoltaic and with all of the massive costs involved in that. Yep, it's virtue signalling. There's no doubt about that. And uh, we ag yep. I'd agree. Uh, I know about uh, the transmission costs uh, you know, to, to establish that transmission, let alone transmission losses. So if yeah, you can ge yeah, generate yeah. right where the need is, it's a whole lot smarter. So a uh, little nuclear power plant outside Perth and another one outside Adelaide and another one outside Melbourne and Sydney might just help quite a bit. And I remember when we were saying that we wouldn't allow nuclear-powered ships into yeah. our ports. Uh, that 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 argument sort of fizzled. I've been inside a nuclear powered ship about thirty kilometres from Perth. I've been inside one. So <laughs> it's happening. It's happening. It's happening. Hey, and another thing. Oh, sorry, Jasper. Oh. Uh, so yesterday here, I went out to a one of these. Uh, you know, we have elections coming up. So ACT Party, which is supposed to be supposed to be one of the saner ones. So the candidate he openly admitted that, yep. It is completely true that if New Zealand tomorrow disappeared from the face of the earth without a trace, our emissions are that insignificant. You know, it doesn't well, matter. And he's a farmer himself. But then yeah, you go to yeah, their website yeah. and it says, ACT is committed to New Zealand doing its part for climate. I'm like, what gives? I come from India, the land of the sacred cow. Depending on which government website you open which day, we have something like 400 to 600 million cows. You try telling an uneducated farmer there that your cows are changing the world's climate. You'll be laughed out of the bully place. Yes, of course. Yet of heavier. Course. Yeah, heavier. Yeah. So, so the, the same would apply to Australia, I think, with the amount of emissions that we actually uh, are emitting. But it's interesting. Um, we feed about 25 million Australians and fifty over 50 million people around the world. So part of our emissions is actually producing the food for, for another 50 million people. So we're clobbered with that one. There's also the cost of digging out all the iron and the coal and stuff that we dig out. So we're clobbered with the emissions from there as well. And on top of that, we're, our second largest by value export is actually coal. 
And so we're so sanctimonious that we, we want to close any coal-fired power station in Australia, but we're shipping out to millions and millions of tonnes of coal to be burned in other places in the world. But somehow or another, I, I just can't quite figure out why people can't join the dots. Oh, it's, it must make you feel so good, Tony. It must make you feel so good. No, <laughs> <you're doing. laughs> but but you, you, I don't think Australian farmers have been told they're going to ta- tax the Belsh and the burps of cows and sheep yet, have you? I Look, our cattle think... industry is turning itself inside out right now, trying to get to zero uh, 2030, I think. Now, I don't know how they're going to do that. I, I don't understand the mechanism. There is a seaweed extract that can be put into the diet of, of, of cattle to stop them producing as much methane, and, and that's doable uh, in a dairy or in a feedlot where you've got access to the cattle and they've got access to fodder. I don't know what you do with a cow roaming around in the Pilbara somewhere. I, I think that's um, that's going to go the way it's going to go. Look, well, out there, there's, there's wildlife doing it too. Well, we'll send you some data that shows you you don't have to do anything. So you know, make sure the PGA just stands tall against any of this nonsense because in New Zealand right now we have farmer groups who have said we've got to do something because, you know, we're, we're being uh, knocked around pillar to post in the media. We've just got to do something. We've got to appease Greenpeace. We should pay a little tax. We should pay a little tax. We should also know your number so we could have all the clipboarded, um, bespectable, bespectacled um uh, administrators come around to your farms and uh, do the compliance. We're we're in that deep at the moment. But so all I'd say to you, Tony, is stay staunch. Don't allow anyone near near your place doing that measurement. Certainly uh, planning on standing staunch. So yeah, yeah, no, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And so a couple more things. You've got a national identification scheme in your um in your sheep and sheep anyway, cattle I assume as well. Um, how's that going? Because I know it created serious tension here when it came in about oh, 2010 and it's still not working properly. It's called National Animal Identification and Tracing yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. Look, and it's all, um, it's all low frequency EIT tags for yeah, cattle, no, 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 cattle I, and I, deer. I, yeah, no, all, all over it. Um, the, the sheep debate, we've lost that. It seems as though the powers that be are going to inflict it upon us. Um, it sounds simple, it sounds easy. Um, we often buy stock in uh, to finish, to fatten, and they will be bought out of sale yards. Uh, just odd pen loads. We, we could have a consignment of sheep turn up here with maybe, on, on a, say, a, a B-double. There might be 30 or 40 different lines of sheep on that truck, and we actually have to scan every one of those sheep as it comes on a property, and then we have to download the data. Um, we had a system here where uh, each age of sheep got a coloured tag in it indicating the, the age. If we bought an animal in and, or even bred on our own farm, we put a tag in its ear that indicated that it had a name and a number on it, which was our form of identification. Um, I thought that was working fairly well, but in the way that the IPA is saying we're being overregulated, we, we've, we've lost this one, the, you know, the, the boffins, and there will need to be a department in Perth, there'll need to be a building, there'll need to be computers, and there'll need to be a structure to fine, fine all of those of us that don't do it the right way. Um, yeah, another one we lost. Exhibit New Zealand, have a look at us. You know, you said you did look at us. Uh, well, actually, from memory, our input in about 2010 from Federated Farmers New Zealand was wrong technology, um, uh, didn't cover all species, so sheep aren't involved yet. Uh, there's a whole lot of things, but the wrong technology, it was low-frequency tags uh, when apparently high-frequency um, ID stuff is available. Uh, technology is available and apparently that is so much more simple than doing each animal one by one you can just scan around the 
the the, uh, the yard and get the whole lot. Okay, right. And so right. and so that makes it a whole lot simpler. But still, it's yes. a compliance. Still a compliance. I went to to a meeting with the previous director general of agriculture. This is a, the top man below the minister, public servant, and uh, I put a pair of electrician side cutters on the desk in front of him, and I said to him, Ralph, what are they? And he said, well, side cutters, no, they're not. They're ownership adjusters. They're ownership adjusters. (laughs) (laughs) You can take a tag out. (laughs) Gosh. Anyway, look, um, they can devise all these schemes. And, of course, the other one at uh, at that time it was, oh, we'll be able to count our emissions because we'll know exactly where each animal is. So that will be – it was sort of uh, subversion tactics. They didn't say that at the outset, but it was clear in the bowels of their – their, their paperwork that was part of the part of the plan. So let's talk about something else that's a hoary chestnut in uh, Western Australia, and it has been in New Zealand, and it's live exports. Live exports, as I understand it, is absolutely fundamental to the economy of um, the agriculture sector in Western Australia. Uh, to me, it adds competition as well. Uh, you know, and and of course in New Zealand, we've sort of had the wings clipped of it. I, I like that extra spring, string to your bow, but it's a fundamental in your state, isn't it? Well, it is. Um, it's now so magnificently well managed. You know, the, the, the trade, the Awasi incident was a really bad one. Uh, it wasn't in any way characteristic of the way the trade was conducted, but it was certainly a turning point. Um, the, the losses on on ships now are minuscule. You know, we, we, we can't even match it on property. The trade is squeaky clean. Uh, we are the policemen. We've got the highest standards in the world. Um, we set the benchmark all over the world. What's going on right now is despicable because the Labor government, clamouring to come to power, actually made a promise to a number of city inner city elites, the ones that are rocking the boat and causing all the problems, and they promised to ban the trade. And uh, it was purely to gain votes. It was done to gain seats, probably in Melbourne and Sydney, maybe in Adelaide. But it was just purely a cynical move to, to glean votes from people who knew nothing about the trade, but it just sounded good. They just banned the trade, end of story. So we've now had a, a, a huge series of meetings with a group that have covered the state to, to determine what the implications might be. And I think they found this to be far more complex than they ever thought it was. It's far more, the trade is far more embedded in what we do in the West than they had any idea. But a lot of farmers have been going to these meetings and putting in submissions and, and really doing a fantastic job advocating on front of the, to the front of the industry. But the issue lies with the Labor government and the power brokers. They're just counting the seats. They're just simply counting the seats. And if they could say that if we um, ban the trade, we'll keep these seats, if we allow it to continue, we'll lose these seats, and that might tip us out of government, you know, we need to bring extraordinary pressure to bear on some of the politicians that might then go back to their, to their masters and the Labor Party and say, this is going to hurt. If we keep going with this policy, this is going to hurt us electorally. And that that's the underbelly, and that's probably, I think, the only way that we'll get the this current Labor government to recognise that, that to pursue the policy, it will hurt. And hurting them is the only thing that I actually understand. One other point I've just thought about um that may be happening in your area is the bankability of a farm and farming enterprise being hindered by environmental uh, credential or quality assurance credentials by the banking institution. Are they putting are they putting a 
a premium or a, an extra cost on farmers that haven't ticked all the boxes for, or are they giving perhaps I might say a rebate for those that are I mean because that's happening in New Zealand where yeah. we're getting and what would you would call I, I, what what are they Jasper what would we call them are ESG in, are, we, are we talking about ESG yeah, sort of ESGs. Here, Tony. yeah so you yeah. know tick off the right boxes you have companies like Nestle now putting pressure on our co-op Fontera it is that you know we need to have this diversity we need to have these many people on boards and stuff like that stuff that is beyond just the financial but, but I, was also yeah, talk, I, I, I was also talking about the yeah. banking uh, uh banks as, as well giving mm-hmm. discounted interest rates Tony all of this in the same green same loans really. and all of that yeah, yeah green loans yeah you know, I I can't say I've seen a lot of that but I wouldn't say for one moment that it might not be just around the corner um look this virtue signaling um we've seen big companies in Australia Rio Tinto um BHP West Farmers um make enormous contributions um to the yes case within the, the this context of the referendum that's coming up um that's virtue signaling it's done in their business but they're trying to uh, say look at us how good we are and, and I can really and truly see that um and I think National Bank did something a while ago um where they might quite readily say well we can carry favor with our voters if we just tell these farmers that we won't let them do this we won't give them the money now look I think that it's starting to show it's, it's just beginning to be there um and, and my retort to that it's been just be very careful you know we actually feed you and we feed you with some of the best food in the world and a massive variety of it you know we've been kicked from pillar to post by so many different groups in our society today and each one of them has its own little vested interest and is giving us a hiding um back off you know we we do what we do with, with in the best way we can and there are plenty of other causes you know if you really want to find a cause to go and sort of throw yourself at but i just say to the broader community just leave the farmers alone they're doing a pretty good job and and they don't need to be put under pressure where where they go to work in the morning wondering whether what they're doing has value and there's there's a lot of that started creeping in that, that we've been told on so many different fronts that that we're concerned about what you're doing and we don't like what you're doing and we will regulate you if we can so this last week just gone out here we had i don't know what the mental health is doing there in the rural space but in new zealand it is certainly suffering and we've had the launch of a suicide prevention program not too far from me and all of this and yet no one seems to think where this is heading so they put a bit of a bandaid on that and yet you have farmers where i uh, for us many farmers were getting out what they're doing is they're selling up big and they're selling it to pine trees because we are at this point i believe the only country in the world that allows 100% offsets via pines just planting blanket pines yeah, yeah, yeah. so we are converting our prime pastoral land into pines a complete travesty if i ever saw one but uh, there seems to be absolutely nothing no nothing from wellington it's like money grows on trees in new zealand and that's where new zealand farmers are going at this point and i i i don't blame them the incentives have been screwed the money is probably done would i say twice as much as uh, at least can be it can be on certain country yep yeah yeah look there's absolutely no doubt whatsoever that the farming community here are feeling under pressure a huge mm-hmm. amount of pressure there's all the normal pressure about bank loans and seasons and markets and whatever but they're also feeling under enormous pressure and uh, there's a protest coming up in about 2 weeks time down south from here i think that will be very very well attended i think i could turn on a protest if i put it out and about where we've got 10 or 20,000 people would come to perth the farming community have had enough 
They're just sick of it. They're sick of being belted in every way because, as I said, you know, climate and weather um, and pricing, and that's we live with that. But when your society itself isn't supportive, when your financial institutions aren't supportive, um, it, it can very easily happen where someone might simply say, I'm done here. This is just too hard. And if an offer was made for big corporate to you know, carbon credits or whatever, I could see a lot of people, if the finances were good enough, just simply say, I'm out of here, I'm done. You know, that's we've just been hit from too many different directions by too many different forces. Yeah, and so just I've tried to see a bit of a point of difference uh, for, from New Zealand's got a relatively dominant um, dairy industry player called Fonterra. It's probably about 80 to 85% of the, of the milk uh, in New Zealand. And... And it basically says, if the government, sorry, if the government says jump, it jumps, it says how high, and it ropes every farmer in. And now they'll despise me for saying that, but I've always said that Fonterra acts like the government for all farming. And it's easy to go to the government uh, or to go to one agency, and and that's uh, then they spread their their desires through the through the machinery of that co-op. Has Western Australia got any really dominant processing in? In any industry, or has it completely um, open markets? Has uh, yeah, there's no uh, state trading enterprises. There's nothing like that. We actually had a state trading organisation controlling our lamb here for a while, and the PJ was very, very instrumental in destroying that. But you've always got the big supermarkets, you know, the Woolworths and the Coles. They set up their supply chains and they squeeze and they squeeze and they squeeze. Mm. That's where live export is such a an outlet for us because they'll take in anything. They'll take old ewes, they'll take withers, they'll take lambs, they'll take anything. And, and when the when the buyers are buying for live export, and it's not happening at the moment because it's a hot period up there and it's, we shut down, when the buyers are buying, they're competing against the supermarkets and it brings in electricity into the auction system. So you know, our, our domestic meat consumption isn't that great. Export of boxed meat, well, it's it's fought with difficulty. Uh, and that's where the live export thing, as I said, is, is such a player because it brings a diversity into the marketplace. Mm. Yeah, and I'll, I'll never forget uh, about 15 years ago, a local processor said to me the best money he made was an old ewe um, processed, split in half uh, after it was blast frozen and sent to uh, India. And that's where he was making the most money. And I thought, yeah, gee, yeah. I, I'm giving prime lamb, you know, putting all that effort into getting this thing exactly right, peas in the pod, you know, 18, yeah, 20 yeah, Ks. Yeah. And um, I, I forget at the time, I was getting less than less than the price of an old U anyway. And of course, that ebbs and flows. I understand that. But gee, the cost of doing the processing here is just, it, it just slowly eats you alive. And we've talked about this sort of in this interview, how, um, cost structures in our own countries. You know, they just gnaw away and gnaw away until there's nothing. All the left. time, just, just yep. chipping away, chipping away. And, but but and we keep at, doing it. Yeah. Well, you know, what happened in our dairy industry in Fonterra, fairly big over east yeah. here? Yeah. Um, for a while there, bottled water was more expensive than milk. Sure. You know, this absolutely shitty way that the, the dairy farmers got treated, it, it, it was excruciatingly painful to watch dairies just folding. Uh, Places that have been father and son and grandfather, perhaps just shutting shop. But in, in the end, supply and demand you know, came into rule. And, and I, I guess that's just the marketplace readjusting and, and it has sorted it. But you asked me a question a minute ago. We actually had the thing called the Australian Wheat Board. And the Australian Wheat Board acquired all the wheat grown by all the wheat growers all over Australia. And it was illegal, illegal for a producer to sell wheat to anybody else except the Australian Wheat Board. 
That fight ran for nearly 20 years, and we finally lopped the head off that back in 2010. And even amongst the growing fraternity, um, it was a very cosy place to be. You didn't have to wake up at nighttime and market your grain. You just got told how much you were going to get, and the checks arrived uh, every now and then. And, and there were those that said the sky would fall in uh, if the Australian Wheat Board lost its power of acquisition. We have the most booming, vibrant wheat market you could ever imagine. There's buyers coming from everywhere, and you know, it's, it's totally revitalised the industry just by getting government out of that space. And so, Tony, you're a breath of fresh air. I mean, gosh, there was a few of your types in my time and the Federated Farmers over here as well, but there wasn't many of us. Um, <laughs> we, was, there's plenty of people who would love to see the clock turn back to the to the old ways. But um, uh, I asked you that question as sort of a patsy question because I knew the answer uh, yeah, yeah, I've done yeah, the research. Yeah. Hey, um, it worries me when I look at the demographic of Western Australia, the number of farms left, the amalgamations are happening just like here. There's less less potential, um, less individual owner operators than there used to be. Yeah, sure, the scale of enterprise is probably considerably larger to try and maintain that enterprise, um, you know, in, in, in a family ownership or in a private ownership. Where, how much, I mean, I've got an issue that, it concerns me that corporate farming, taking out little guys to the point that they become so dominant that the little guy doesn't exist anymore, is a bad thing no, for society. It, no, look, it's, it, it, yeah, it's happening. It is clearly happening. You know, the, the days of the three, 4,000-acre farm are well and truly over. You know, the big guys are getting bigger and bigger, sure. and then there are aggregations of these properties that have been handed over to corporates. You know, they're, they're there, um, and, and I don't know where we're going to go, but the, the death of the country town here is quite palpable. You know, towns that used to field a football team can't sure. anymore. Sure. Some towns cease to exist. Dealerships have closed. Um, it seems to be a natural phenomenon. The, the, the cost of farmland here in the last two or three years has just gone It's just gone stupid. It's way beyond any return that you can make farming it. So the speculators are in. Um and it's not unusual now to see you know, farmers that are carrying staggering debt, uh, but running big operations. Um, you know, if interest rates went as high as they did in the early eighties, it would be painful. Well, and so I think disaggregation has happened before, where big farms have had to be split up to maintain themselves. That's happened in my in this province that I live in uh, over time. But this time, it just seems to have a momentum on that's different, and I uh, I am concerned that you get less players. Uh, I yeah you know, the individual I'm I'm all for the for the for the rights of the individual to exist and and farm and do the, do what they see fit, but because we're having these straitjacket sort of rules and regulations all over us, the only ones that seem to be able to say yes to it all the time are the big corporates, and it bothers me that um, that's got momentum. So and I I just looked at your demographic over there and I looked at your membership uh, for the West Australian Farmers Federation and yours, and I looked at you know, how, how you can represent them um, with this declining base. You know, I'm, I'm not sure how you're funded uh, for, the, for the PGA, but if it's voluntarily funded, you're getting less and less um, funds, surely. So how are you maintaining the PGA's, uh, you know, basically it's, its balance sheet? How do you maintain it? Um, the corporates that are running the pastoral properties in WA are pretty responsible citizens. Right. Um, no, they, they've they've never faulted. Um, all their properties are listed. You know, we, we represent uh, almost 85% of all the pastoral properties in West Australia, the non-Indigenous ones, 
And, and, and that is quite spectacular in the context of representation in other places, farm organisations. Um, but one of the things that has happened is that some of the, the properties, most of them taken over by big corporates, they spend a, a staggering amount of money there. You know, the upgrades in yards and fences in water and roads and everything um, has been beyond the reach of the, the yep. smaller private owner. Um, we've got a lot of members that are just family shows and and and, and they, they survive because they're really, really good at what they do. Um, I don't see an issue in, in the pastoral estate anyway of the bigger corporates because they're, they're very responsible citizens right. and, they, and they do it well and they, they're very conscious of the fact that uh, work health and safety and environmental stuff that they'll get clobbered if they if they seem to be denuding the countryside. Um, yeah. Down here in the Wheatbelt, it's a bit different because the communities that don't exist up north that do down here are dying and uh, very hard to get volunteers for anything because there just aren't the number of people there anymore. Um but from the pure point, pure point of efficiency, um, these guys are putting huge pieces of equipment over massive acreages in a day, seeding and harvesting. Mm. It's a very efficient way to do it, and uh, it's very difficult to match that with a little guy. Oh, so sure. I, I think we just have to accept this is organic. It's happening. The last thing we need is government stepping in to start regulating. That would be the, the worst thing that could happen. I think we just got to ride the beast and see where it takes us to. Yeah, look, sure, I know. So I was playing the devil's ad advocate again because I do see, uh, even in this province that we live in, it's quite a small province, only got 100,000 people, um, but the retooling of the landscape, the, the whole Southland Plains have been retooled with dairying after sheep and beef farming. Uh, the reinvestment has been massive and God knows what the debt is. I, you know, that's a different story, but um, it's, it's, story. it's been fantastic. New houses, new sheds, new pastures new bridges it doesn't matter what it is it's 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 good it's been a, a revitalization so uh you know and and as i said um it may be that uh certain farms reach a capacity and it it it, it may be split up again if things get really yeah, bad yeah. it may well, get split up look it, it may um the kimberley was there were a lot of sort of fa smaller family shows up there, and and and, and um, Ernie Bridger, previous minister for agriculture here, was bemoaning the fact of the loss of the, of the family property. But the corporate people that are operating up there, you know, the, the money they're ploughing in. I mean, at the end of the day, um, if if animals aren't walking huge distances to water, if there's shade put in, which they're doing, there's a lot of stuff happening up there that uh, you know, it's quite spectacular. And, and I take my hat off to them. Right. Oh, so. Yeah, wrapping this up, I um, mean, I'm going to ask the, the worst question of the evening, of, of the interview, sorry, um, and that is the WA Farmers Federation versus the PGA. In New Zealand, we have a group called Groundswell, who is um, sort of the fly in the ointment to the establishment um, farmer lobbies. And I liken uh, what you or how you express your story as a little bit like the Groundswell in New Zealand, except you've got a whole lot more. Um, Members, uh, members. <laughs> well, well, I, I think um, Tony's got a whole lot more uh, um, balls in the air, effectively covering a whole lot more bases. But it, why is it? Do you think that the? Um, sorry, this is the Patsy question. Why is it that the uh, uh, the farmers' federations seem to be a little weak? They seem to be in the tent, as they say over here. If I could ask that question, I would. Um, John <laughs> Hassel is the president of the other outfit. Yeah. Uh, I'm scheduled to meet with him in the coming week. 
We do talk on a reasonably regular basis. I tend to find that we go a bit harder than they do. Yeah. Um, they have always traditionally sought government assistance whenever anything goes wrong. We've absolutely adamantly said, no way, absolutely no way. We don't want the government on our patch. Um, also, um, they tend to reside in the camp of what I'd refer to as a national party over here, which is a sort of in the middle party, and we're a bit more right-wing than that. And an attempt was made about three years ago to bash us together, and the vote came voluntary thing, but when the vote came out resoundingly that we remain two separate organisations. And I, I was pretty pretty pleased with that because obviously there's a large proportion of the rural population that like what we do. Fantastic. And, I, you know, I can see why. Um, it's interesting, uh, after the... Sunday Outsiders show, uh, I had a colleague who wrote, who rang me actually and said, you've got to get that guy Tony Seabrook on. <laughs> and, and I said, do you, do you think he's a little bit like me? And um, <laughs> even Jas Freak would uh, agree with that. Hey, Tony, I think uh, we need to wrap this and um, let you get off, but it's been a fantastic uh, hour and a bit. Uh, we did cover a lot of bases, um, social oh, policy did. right through to uh, – to your organization's um, membership. And I don't know, uh, it's the scale of enterprises you have in Western Australia is hard for us to fathom uh, from the little provinces in, in the south of New Zealand, but um, it is a busy uh, state. And um, I just wish you had better governance, just like I wish New Zealand had better governance. So it's been I a hope, pleasure. I hope you. Um, I hope you can remedy that very soon and, and set the example you know, for us. I think it'd be very interesting if, in six months' time, we swap notes on both sides yeah. of the Tasman where we are at, because things are certainly coming to a head. Tony, okay. thank you so Look much for joining us right, today. My word, thank you for sure. Yep. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR Reality Check Radio.